Well, it's interesting as we get to the end of a book that has had some bleak moments and some heavy moments and sometimes some difficult things to sort of wrap our minds around, you might have thought that by the time we got to the end, uh, the narrator would come around and be like, nah, okay, here's the deal. You got to take everything the preacher says with a grain of salt, right? He was having a bad month when he wrote this. He's been in a little bit of a funk. So, you know, just, just don't, you don't have to take it all. That isn't at all what happens, right? We get to the end of the book and actually what we hear from the narrator is a strong and encouraging endorsement of both the character and the teaching of Kohelet or of the preacher, the gatherer of assemblies. Here's what he says in verse 9. He says, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The book concludes here with the narrator's voice giving a positive evaluation of the preacher's observations and his character and his honesty. I I went through those uh, verses 9 and 10 and and he, he refers to the preacher as wise and concerned about others. He talks about the preacher as being clear and discerning, that he's thorough and intentional, that he's careful in what he's put forth, that he's purposeful in what he's laid out. It talks there about the fact that the preacher sought to find words of delight. That word delight doesn't necessarily mean that it will tickle the ears or that it will make you feel good. But the idea of delight in the context here in the original language is the idea of putting forth words that were effective and timely. That he's written something that's actually valuable for us and he was discerning and careful enough to recognize what that would be. He finishes this assessment of the preacher by saying he wrote uprightly words of truth, that both his character was upstanding and that what he said is is true. So for some of you who've been in this study of Ecclesiastes with us along the way, and you've found there are places where maybe you don't like what Kohelet has said, or maybe you feel uncomfortable with some of the ways he's talked about God or some of the ways he's talked about the world. Maybe you felt solidarity with him and you felt a little bit guilty about that. And you're waiting to come to the end of the book and sort of get a little bit of a smackdown. You're waiting for the author to be like, if you think the way Kohelet thought, knock it off because it's not good or whatever. That's the opposite of what happens. What happens instead is that the narrator at the end says, you know what? Kohelet approached this thing appropriately and carefully and studiously and with intention and purpose. And what he said is upright and true. There is no argument with Kohelet's observations. Uh, There is no discrediting of his character or his purposes. There's an endorsement of all those things. He says, what the preacher has given us is valuable, right? It's valuable and it's true. With that endorsement, though, then he also gives a couple of cautions. He says this in verse 11. This is kind of more of a reminder than a caution. In 11, he says, The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They're given by one shepherd. That's an interesting statement. He says, Some of what you've heard has been provocative. And he uses shepherding language here. He says, Some of it feels like a goad. What's that mean? Well, it means it's pushed you a little bit. It's been provocative. It's been catalytic. Some of it has kind of stung a little bit as it maybe pushes you in a way of thinking or in a direction of living that you don't necessarily like or aren't particularly comfortable with. He says, Sometimes his words are like goads. Other times they're like nails that pin you down. He's like, so this wisdom, sometimes it's pushed you and other times it's kind of hemmed you in. Sometimes it's provoked you to action and other times it's forced you to kind of stay put where you are. And he says, that is what a shepherd does. The same shepherd uses wisdom to both provoke and to pin down. And neither one of those are necessarily very comfortable, right? Both of those things can be a little awkward. They can sting a little bit. There may be places as we've studied Ecclesiastes where you felt the sting. You felt like, man, I got to... 
I got to think about things differently or I got to recalibrate the way I'm living or the way I'm approaching my life or the way I'm approaching uh, physical possessions or the way I'm approaching death or whatever. All throughout this book, Kohelet, the preacher, has said, all of this is hevel, right? It's meaningless. It's, it, life is bananas. It's absurd. It's empty. It's a, a chasing or a striving after wind, right? And he says, in all of these observations, we hear from, from this preacher words that sting a little, and they push us, and they also sort of pin us down. We've all sort of been in situations where the things we hear aren't necessarily things we like to hear, but they're good for us, right? I've, I've told some of you the story before that when I moved to... Uh, when I moved to Long Beach, I had to get a new doctor. This was back in 2009. And so I'm doing an interview with my potential new doctor. And he asked me about my family history and all these other things. And we finally get down to this more kind of informal part of the interview. And he says, well, tell me a little bit about you and your life and you know, hobbies and whatever. And I said, well, <clears throat> I like to read. Um, I love to play video games. I listen to a lot of music. I like to go to movies. We go to concerts. Like I, I, uh, I like art museums, like that sort of thing. And he goes, oh, he's like, so you're basically what we would call a sedentary lifestyle. And you're laughing because you know what that word means. Uh, but I did not know what the word meant. And I had just explained to him that I liked literature and art. I liked the theater. You know, I like music. I felt like I had just told him I was very classy individual, you know. So the way I read contextually what he had said was that he was complimenting me, right? So I'm interviewing with this brand new doctor and he asked me about my life. I tell him about all my interests. He says, oh, you're what we call a sedentary lifestyle. And my response was, yeah, I guess you could say that. Thanks, doctor, right? I, like I received it as a, like a, he was saying something nice about me. So the doctor just kind of made a note, probably like this guy's got a psychological issue, whatever. And uh, I go home and you know how sometimes you've had a conversation and then you replay it in your mind. I'm replaying the conversation in my mind later. and I'm thinking, I don't know what that word sedentary means. Uh, and I'm going to look it up. So I Google it. The Google definition comes up and it says a lifestyle characterized by inactivity. And then in parentheses, it says couched potato. Couch potato, right? So here I am with a brand new doctor. I'm trying to, you know, kind of influence here to try and get into the, the office. And he looks at me and he basically says, after I tell him all my hobbies, he says, oh, you're a couch potato. And my response is, yeah, I guess you could say that. Thanks, doctor. I don't mind. Uh, I don't mind owning that. I am a couch potato, right? His words were meant to prod me. They were meant to both be a goad in some ways to provoke me maybe to riding the Peloton or to pin me down a little bit, to be honest about the fact that there are some things in my life that probably needed to change. But because I didn't understand it, it was neither provocative or pin me down until later. What the writer here is telling us at the end of this book, what the narrator is telling us is that Kohelet's words, his observations about the fact that God has a purpose and a plan, but many times we're not made aware of what that purpose and plan is. That God has a watch and a clock, that there are seasons and times for everything under the sun, but many times we're not clued in on what time it is or what season we happen to be in. The fact that we can look at the world and there are times where it feels like the righteous people are actually suffering and the unrighteous people are getting richer and richer and we go, what is going on? Like, Is God paying attention to this? We see the inequality and the injustice and we see all these things that we wish God would do differently. In those places where the preacher has said, I see that God is in control and I got to tell you, I don't like what he's doing. And I, sometimes I don't even understand it, right? What the narrator is telling us at the end is that these words and these observations, they're not wrong. They're upright and true. That he, he was careful and meticulous in preparing this for us. 
but that these words and observations are meant to prod us, that they're sometimes meant to pin us in and sometimes they're meant to catalyze us into activity. And and both of those come from the same shepherd. Now, some would say, and you can see in the ESV uh, that in verse 11, the word shepherd is capitalized. That's because the interpreters of the ESV, the translators, decided that he was making a reference there to God. And he may very well have been making a reference to God. Uh, the Hebrew people believed that God was the source of all wisdom, right? So that would make sense. It's also possible he's just saying, like a human shepherd, both prods and pens down, that's what the preacher has done for us in his sayings. And then he gives us a warning. So he's given us a reminder about the nature of wisdom writings, the provocative nature of those. Then he gives us a warning. Look at verse 12. He says, my son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of flesh. What, what, what's he talking about? Well, what he's saying here is, Kohelet's given us all these observations. He's given us all of these musings, these ponderings, all this wisdom and proverb. And the danger for you is going to be like, well, he never solves it, right? So many of these questions are left unanswered. There are so many things about who God is and what he's doing that, that doesn't appear that the preacher ever figured out. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to decide to spend my life solving the riddles that Kohelet was not able to solve. And the writer goes, don't fall into that trap, right? Do not fall into the trap of thinking you can solve this, of thinking that there are quantifiable and absolute answers to some of these questions about what time it is or what God's doing or, or how God is ruling the universe, right? He says, if you go down that path, you'll get stuck in a little bit of a whirlpool. You'll get stuck in a place where you can't get out. You're just working and working and working. He says, you'll be able to write forever and never get the end of some of these questions. Well, what he's pointing to here is is that the chasm between creature and creator is great. And that there will be, no matter how much you study and no matter how much you research and no matter how hard you work, there will always be some things about the nature and character of God that you and I cannot figure out. And if you decide that you think those things are solvable, you will spend your whole life in hevel, in futility, in frustration, chasing the wind. He says to us here in verse 12, you don't need to chase the wind because Kohelet has done that for you. He was richer than you. He was more powerful than you. He had more influence than you. He was wiser than you. He's done all these things before you. So please, he's saying, don't get stuck in the whirlpool of trying to answer every question the world has about God. Because if you do that, you'll never get to the end. You'll never get to the end. He says, instead, recognize that he's done all this work. And at the end, he goes, God is God. And he has a purpose and a plan. And I don't know what he's doing, right? And it's fine, to rest in his conclusions. It's fine to rest in that uncertainty. The warning here is him essentially saying, enough already. There's no need to go on and on about the hevel of this life or how absurd things are. We aren't going to solve it or satisfy ourselves, but we might waste a ton of time and increase our anxiety. This isn't a warning about Kohelet's observations, but a warning about getting stuck in our heads rather than learning from the past that he has already walked so we don't have to. Does that make sense? He says, my son, don't get trapped in this, but learn and keep moving, right? He says, rather than getting trapped there, and here he gives us his summary statement. Look at 13 and 14. He says, instead, here's the end of the matter. The end of the matter, all has been heard. After hearing everything that Kohelet has to say, here's a summary. He says, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. 
For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. It's worth noting here, by the way, that when it says the whole duty of man, there's a couple things. The first one is that's not gender specific. So it's not saying uh, men as opposed to women. It's saying this is the whole of humankind, all of us. So you can't, sorry, ladies, that includes you, right? You can't opt out of that. But secondly, when it says duty in the SV, that word duty has been added. Duty sounds like obligation or it sounds like a responsibility. What's actually written here in the original language is more along the lines of the fact that after you've asked all your questions and after you've vented all your frustrations and after you've acknowledged that there are things about God that simply you're not going to be able to comprehend and some of them you might not like, after all of that, honor God and obey him. And he says, not that's the whole duty of man, but rather that is what it means to be a human, right? That is the whole of mankind is a better translation. That's everything. Everything is fearing God and keeping his commandments because at the end of the day, it will be his judgment that matters, not yours. Your judgment of what God has done, your judgment of the rightness and wrongness of that, your judgment of its equality or inequality, those things aren't gonna matter because your knowledge is finite and your understanding is limited and so is mine. I'm not talking to you, I'm talking to us, right? At the end of the day, God will judge all things and he will point out to us the rightness and wrongness, the morality of it, he will demonstrate. But for us in the here and now, there is a future utility in chasing answers that you can't have. So in the midst of your questions and in the midst of your frustrations, what he says is, yeah, I hear you. I hear you. I I hear that you're frustrated. I hear that you're confused. I hear that there are times when you wish you could see the watch that's on God's wrist. Follow God anyway. Follow him anyway. Now, if you were an Israelite, if you were an ancient Hebrew, this would be a very disappointing end to this book, by the way, right? If you'd read this whole book at the time and you were an ancient Hebrew, you'd be like, wait a second, we did all of that to get back here? Back to this place? Because listen, the core tenets of being a good Hebrew, being a good Israelite, you know what the core tenets of being a good Israelite are? Fear God and keep his commandments, right? This is redundancy. It's like we just did all this stuff about how frustrating the world is and about how how you, you amass all this wealth and then you just have to give it to your descendant and he might be an idiot, right? And that's so frustrating. You can't hold on to these things. You get old and your teeth start to fall out and there's nothing you can do to stop it. And at the end, you're gonna bring us back to a place where you just say to us the same thing our parents have been telling us since we were kids? The writer goes, yeah. Yeah, that, that core answer is the whole of what it means to be a human being. The core is fear God and keep his commandments. Fear God, by the way, doesn't mean to quake in fear. It's not that kind of fear. It's talking about honor. It's talking about respect. It's talking about worship. When it talks about obedience, that's talking about keeping God's commandments, right? The whole of man is to honor God and to obey him. God will be the one to judge and you will only make yourself frustrated if you try and find answers to things that only God decides. There's a reminder here to be honest about our limited ability to judge, right? Our limited ability to judge. We only see so much. We only have so much power. Our perspective is always limited. We come to everything with our biases. And so in those moments where we're tempted to feel certain about our assessment of anything, what he's saying to us is be more suspicious of your own judgment. Be more suspicious of your conclusions. Be more suspicious of what you think you know. And instead, honor God and listen to what he has said. Our students have just come back from Hume Lake. They were studying... uh, They were studying the book of Daniel, the narrative portions of Daniel, which we studied not that long ago. 
If you remember in Daniel chapter 3, when Shadrach, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are uh, told that they have to bow down to the statue of Nebuchadnezzar or they'll be burned in the fire. You remember that story? Probably from Veggie Tales or whatever. Uh, when they are, they are told they have to bow down, do you remember their response? Their response is really beautiful. You can read this later. I'll paraphrase it for you. But what they say is, Nebuchadnezzar, our God is able to deliver us from you and your fiery furnace, right? So they declare something about what they know about God. They're, they're honoring who God is. They say, we know who God is. He's capable of rescuing us. And they say, whether or not he will pull us out of the fire, we don't know. But we know we're not bowing down to your stupid statue, right? That's, kind, that's, a, that's like a Darren paraphrase. We're not bowing down to your stupid statue, right? What is it that they, they, they confirm? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do this very thing. Here's what they confirm. We know who God is. We know what God has said. He has told us we can't bow down to any false gods. And as certain as we are about who God is and what he has said, we are equally certain in our own uncertainty about what he will do. Does that make sense? Let me say it to you again. They say we are certain about who God is. And we are certain about what he says. And we are certain we don't know what he's going to do next. He might pull us out of that fire. He might burn us up in that fire, but there are things about God's purposes and his plans that he has not revealed to us, and we're comfortable with that. What is it that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are doing? They're honoring God, and they're keeping his commandments, even though they don't have all the answers, right? The reality is that Daniel 3 would be just as beautiful of a story if those three young men stepped into that fire and got burned to ash, because if that's God's purpose then that's okay. That's hard for us to get, right? But they don't know what he's going to do. He delivers them, but that's his business, not theirs. They say, we know who God is and we know what he's done. What is the writer, to Ecclesi- writer of Ecclesiastes saying to us? In the end assessment, after everything has been heard, there's a lot of stuff you don't know. There are a lot of answers you don't have. Follow God anyway. Follow God anyway. Respect God and honor him. Now, all the way through the series, we've always looked at what Jesus says, right? Because one of the things we acknowledge at the very beginning of the study is that Kohelet did not have the key to unlock some of his questions. Some of his questions are unlocked by the incarnation of Jesus Christ, by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, by the victorious return and triumph of Jesus Christ, right? Some of his questions get answered in different ways. And in this particular case, I would want to turn you again, as the, as the writer has said to us, look, with all of your questions, don't go down the rabbit hole. You'll get stuck there forever. Fear God and obey him because God will ultimately judge the rightness and wrongness of all things, right? As he says that, I'm reminded of what Jesus says, very similarly in John 15. In John 15, Jesus' encouragement is, you can't do anything unless you stick with me, right? He uses the word abide, and we've talked, when we studied John, we talked about this, that the word abide simply means to remain actively still. It's intentional or active stillness, to remain by Jesus' side, connected to Jesus. Here's what he says in John 15. He says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. By the way, you and I don't know necessarily the vine dresser's plan for the vineyard. Only the vine dresser knows the plan for the vineyard, right? But we know largely that the plan is to produce more fruit, even though we don't know the details of that, Okay. He says in verse three, already you are clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Abide in me, remain actively still in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. 
If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. What's Jesus' recommendation here? His recommendation is, stick with me. There are a lot of things you're going to be incapable of on your own. In fact, you can't do anything without me, so stick with me, right? He says, abide in my word, and abide in my love. And when he says, abide in my love, there might be a temptation for you to be like, oh, that's just like, remember the warm fuzzies of Jesus, right? That he loves you and you're great. He thinks you're awesome, right? Just Jesus, just, I'm just going to abide in his love, right? It's actually technically not what he's talking about. What he says in John 15 is I want you to abide in my love. And the way you abide in my love is to do the things I've told you to do. Honor God, keep my commandments. I think sometimes when we think about God's commandments, we think about Jesus's instructions to his disciples, they feel constrictive or they feel restrictive, right? It feels like he's pinning us in, right? That he's holding us down. But what Jesus says in John 15 is that the things I've asked you to do with your life are actually a demonstration of my affection for you. You want to know that Jesus loves you? Obey his commandments. That's what he says. That's not me. He says that in the obedience of his instructions, doing the things the way he said to do them, you find the life he built you for. There is the ability to find joy and satisfaction by abiding in Christ. And that means honoring him and keeping his commandments. It's interesting. That's, this was Jesus's personal philosophy too. Remember at the beginning... Actually, right before his ministry on earth, Jesus was tempted, right? You remember that story? He was tempted by Satan in the wilderness. And there were multiple temptations, but you know how that temptation finally ended? You know how he finally ran Satan off? Let's look at this. This is Matthew chapter 4, verse 10. At the end of these temptations, Jesus said to Satan, Matthew 4, 10, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. The temptations of Jesus were hard. Those weren't, that wasn't like a charade. It wasn't like he was just going through the motions and didn't actually experience the emotional and spiritual and physical nature of those temptations. Jesus knew suffering. Jesus, it wasn't just that Jesus knew suffering on the cross. Jesus knew suffering as a human being, right? As a human being incarnate, God in the flesh, he knew suffering. And in the wilderness, he is suffering. He's being tempted with things that are actually temptations. And the way he combats those, the way he combats that difficulty and suffering is he says, away from me, Satan. What I got to do? Honor God and keep his commandments. This isn't just a recipe for us. It's literally Jesus's recipe to get through the difficulties of this life. You guys, as we've studied Ecclesiastes together, I'm guessing that there are places where you were frustrated, maybe. Maybe places where you resonated with the the writer and you're thinking like, yeah, I feel that too. What are the answers? When we get to the end and some of these answers still haven't come. And you may be tempted to be frustrated that you're left with your questions or left with your confusion or left with your frustration. But I want you to see that part of the point of this book was to say, you are finite, I am finite, we are going to live not knowing some of the things we wish we knew, not having all of the answers, not having it all solved for us, and yet we are called to follow God, to honor him, and to keep his commandments. I, um, I'll finish with one little story. I, um, 
when I was living at Hume Lake. Like in the first year we lived there, my brand new baby boy, uh, Jack, he was like one at the time. He's in the back seat of my Nissan Xterra. I had a, I had a, a like a Honda Accord when we moved into the mountains and people were like, you're not even going to be able to get that in your driveway, right? You're going to need a, like a four wheel drive. So I buy a Nissan Xterra. Uh, on one particular night, we were coming home, and I've got my uh, new baby in the back seat. My wife's sitting next to me, and we're driving up this. If you've ever driven to Hume, it's like this two-lane, windy road. There's like a cliff there or whatever. We're driving up in the middle of, like, blizzard conditions. You can't see the road in front of you. The snow's coming fast. The windshield wipers won't even do, do any justice to the snow that's hitting the windshield. And I grew up in Arizona, so I don't know that much about snow or driving in the ice. It's not like I'm a Michigan kid or whatever. And we're working our way up. We just want to get to our house, right? We just want to get to bed. And uh, while we're going up the hill, it's nighttime. There's very few cars on the road. And all of a sudden, the ice takes the Nissan Xterra and it, it spins us into two 360s. And if you've ever driven on snow, you know, sometimes the it doesn't matter what you're doing or if you have four-wheel drive on or whatever. Sometimes the ice just does with you whatever it wants. So my Nissan Xterra takes two full rotations and then it spins. And the front end of the truck goes off the road into a bush and the car stalls out. It's a manual transition, transmission. So I get out of the car in the middle of this snowstorm. I'm not dressed for it or whatever. I'm just like in jeans. And I get out to kind of see what's going on with the car. And when I get out, I realize that the front end of my truck is not in a bush, but it's in the top of a tree. And there's actually a cliff on the side of the road that my, that my Nissan Xterra with my wife and baby in it are now spanning, right? The front of the truck is in the tree and the back two wheels are on the road. And so I start to kind of hyperventilate and panic. I look at my wife and I'm like, you need to very carefully and slowly get out of the car, right? It's not safe. We turn on the hazard. She climbs out. I get the baby. Now we're standing in the middle of a snowstorm. Uh, it's pitch black outside. There's like no light except the light of the stars and my flashing hazard lights. And we're like, what are we going to do? Like, we don't even know if another car is going to come along or when. So me and my wife and my little baby in the middle of a blizzard turn like down, right? And we start to walk towards Fresno, which is like 20 miles. We for sure would have died. So anyway, we're walking. And I'm just feeling this like, you know, as a dad, you want to be a fixer, right? You want to be the one who solves the problems and can take care of your family, whatever. And I'm just feeling increasingly stressed. All of a sudden we see headlights come around the corner and I'm nervous the car's going to hit us. It doesn't hit us. Uh, the truck pulls up next to us and the window rolls down and it's one of the maintenance guys from Hume Lake where we live. And he looks at me out the window and he goes, dude, this is a terrible time to be taking a walk with your family. <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> I start crying. I'm like, my car off the tree and the road in the, <laughs> and I, just, I can't get it together. I'm like weeping. I'm so scared, you know? And like, he says, hey, hey, it's no problem. I have a winch on the front of my truck. Like, we'll get you set up. So he goes up there. He, my, my family gets in his truck. He goes up. He winches my car back onto the road. But he made a little mistake in my mind in that when he pulled our truck back onto the road, he pulled it back on the road facing up to Hume Lake. And in my opinion, we were never going to Hume Lake again, right? That season of our life was done. And I said to him, I was like, I need you to help me flip it around because we're going to go to Fresno. We'll just get like a Motel 6 or something. Like, I don't, I don't want to go up. And he's like, no, no, you guys are going to sleep in your own beds. You live at Hume Lake. You got to get up there. And I was like, Kaya, I don't, I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to protect my family. I don't know how to drive in the snow. I don't know how to keep us safe. I don't know how to do any of these things. I don't know any of it. And he goes, I know, but I do. And he says, here's what we're going to do. He says, we're going to get you back into your house this way. He says, I'm going to drive in front of you. And he's like, I want you to put your tires in my 
tire tread marks. And he's like, when I pump the brakes, you pump the brakes. And when I turn on my windshield wipers, you turn on your windshield wipers. When I pull over, you pull over. If I stop to do anything, he's like, you match me exactly. And I was like, I really don't want to do this. You know, he's like, no, this is how we're going to do it. I'm like white knuckled on the steering wheel. We followed him up slowly. I did everything he did. Now, the reality is my knowledge or lack thereof didn't help us at all in that moment. The reality is I was bankrupt with regard to like how to do that thing. But what I knew was who he was and what he knew. And that made all the difference for me and my family. We were able to get up to our place. We were able to sleep in our own beds, you know, and the reality is in our life, there are going to be moments where you're standing in what feels like a snowstorm and the tears are this close away and you don't know what's going on. You don't know what season you're in or you know what season you're in and you don't like it. You don't understand what's happening in the world. You don't understand what God is doing. And what Ecclesiastes has shown us again and again is that it's perfectly reasonable for you to, number one, say those things to God. So it's perfectly reasonable for you to say, I don't understand. You have a problem with God? You have a frustration with God? Tell him. He knows already, right? Who, who do you think you're keeping that a secret from? If you're scared or confused or frustrated, you can talk to God about it. Ecclesiastes shows us that. But more importantly, no matter how you feel, no matter what you know or don't know, no matter what's going on in the world and, and what your particular temperament is toward that circumstance, fear God and keep his commandments. Remember who he is and what he has said and never lose sight of the fact that you don't know what he's going to do, but you know he's good, right? Fear God and keep his commandments. That is everything for human beings. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that you would help us to be a people who embrace our own limitations, who embrace our own doubts and confusion, sometimes even our frustrations, that we would recognize that what Kohelet has said, what the preacher has brought us here is true and upright and good. It was careful and meticulously fashioned that it is a goad in some cases and it is a nail that pins us down in others. And that we don't have to do all the same work he's already done, that we can learn from his example and that in the end we will understand that the two things we can hold on to in this world are who you are and what you've said that we can fear you, that we can respect you and honor you, and, and that we can keep your commandments because they are an expression and an articulation of your affection for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.